The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. A historic close, the S&P finishing the day above 5,000 for the first time ever. And not to be forgotten, the NASDAQ crossing the 16K mark for the first time since late 2021, closing just below that level. But what will the slew of big econ reports coming next week do to to this rally. We'll debate that. Plus, the sun rising on Japan, the country's Nikkei index hitting a new 34-year high overnight. It is now up 11% already this year. Can the run keep going? We are diving into the charts to find out. And later, chips rip even higher as NVIDIA hits yet another all-time high. Coinbase rallies ahead of its earnings report, but one big bear says shares are going lower. In the countdown to kickoff, Contessa Brewer's in Vegas for the big game. She's got the latest odds and the trades on the sports betting stocks. I'm Melissa Lee coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, Guy Adami, and Julie Beal. We start off with Wall Street's record-breaking run, the S&P 500 closing above 5,000 for the first time ever, securing its fifth winning week in a row. In fact, it is up 14 of the last 15 weeks, dating all the way back to October. The NASDAQ also hitting a milestone today. The tech-heavy index trading above 16,000 for the first time since November 2021 earlier today. It is now less than half a percent away from its own own all-time high. The Dow virtually flat on the day. The strong week for stocks coming ahead of another busy week of earnings. Coca-Cola, Cisco, Deere, Lyft, all on the calendar, as well as CPI and PPI reports. Will these headlines keep this rally going? It certainly seems like we want to go higher, Tim. Where are the hats? Are we supposed to be wearing like 5,000 hats? hats? I mean, guy, guy, where's your like sweatshirt or something? S&P 5,000. <laughs> Come on, man. All right, so enough of that. Um, it's, look, it's an extraordinary number, especially when I can almost feel like it was yesterday that I was, you know, when the S&P was at 666, and I was under my desk on March 9th of 2009. Fetal position. Um, it, it, I mean, you know, it, it really has been an extraordinary run. If you look at what the market's done, it's up 32% since the start of last year. You mentioned that reference point just even in October that started that 14 out of 15 weeks. And what's defined that? What's defined it is, uh, I think, as much about that the Fed has peaked uh, and inflation has peaked, but also the economy is showing strength. And, and I think this week is all about riding the, the, the coattails of good news is good news. Last week's payroll number was, was unambiguously bullish. Now, we could get some revisions down in the next couple of months, but, but the reality is you combine an economy that's where it is. You have certainly a, a financial kind of conditions dynamic with the wealth effect that has this consumer feeling pretty darn good. Uh, and then you also have companies beating. The fourth quarter earnings season has actually been better than expected. Uh, and we may not get what we want for 24, but 23 earnings look pretty good. Yeah. 
and the narrative of inflation coming down. I mean, this morning we got the revised CPI number and there was a little bit of worry that those revisions would actually show that inflation was hotter and not lower, but we were revised lower. And so that was a little bit of a, a sigh of relief this yeah, morning. Yeah, prior two months, I think, got revised higher. I'm, yes, everything seems to spot on. And with that said, you would have thought yields, which have been rallying, would have gone lower today. Ten-year yields, the highest point we've seen, I think, since December, closed around 419. There's a lot to listen. The market is on autopilot right now. There's a lot to like. If you believe in fear, greed index, that's obviously at levels we shouldn't be if you want to continue to sort of ride this train. But you know what? We've been here for a while and it hasn't mattered at all, Melms. Yeah. Broadening of the rally, that has happened. I mean, healthcare has really participated since that October reference point. Yeah, and there's a couple of things. So, Tim, I, I would sum it up as soft landing, right? So the economy is doing better. Earnings have bottomed. You're starting to see the economy really hitting on all cylinders. And you haven't seen it hit unemployment yet. That hasn't, that, that hasn't, uh, it, it, it hasn't rose. So if you think about it, we're in election year cycle. I always pull it back to that. I think that there's going to be a lot of a halo put on the economy for that election year cycle. Energy prices are not going to soar. I think inflation has really, it hasn't bottomed yet. I think we're, we're over the hump there. But the main issue for this market is the Fed still. And the Fed is going to be uh, cutting rates. So it's, it depends on the timeline. But that sort of gives an all clear for the market. So have, why haven't we seen better participation, Julie, amongst the small caps, which really tried to make a run at it, but then sort of sputtered this year? Yeah, I think there's the realization that what worked last year was what everyone thinks is going to work this year. There's kind of a retrenchment. And it's because there still are underlying concerns out there in terms of credit card debt and rising delinquencies. So I don't think that investors have a ton of conviction in this rally. They're in it and they're excited. We're all enthusiastic about where the S&P is trading. But I think people are still worried that it's better to be in a growthier position with really strong fundamentals than anything that's a little bit more speculative or uncertain or slower growing. Right. And so we get to the advances, the continued advances in technology in today's session. Um, today was no exception. No, not whatsoever. I mean, Doug Cass put out a thing. Yes, I think we talked about it. The market cap in NVIDIA now is greater than the market cap of the entire XLE, which is staggering. If you think about it, north of one point seven trillion dollars. Good for them, by the way. But you know, the question continue to ask, I mean, are these things just going to levitate seemingly on a daily basis? And then and quite frankly, seemingly on a reiteration of all the news we've heard over and over again. So it, there's this whole we're obsessed with AI. Maybe we should be. Maybe we're overly obsessed. But but what many have talked about, especially many in the space and then sector specific analysts uh, have come in and said, AI is helping the productivity in my sector. And we're talking about, about companies that are in shipping and transportation and retail. Walmart. I mean, Walmart's an AI play if you want it to be. They've made major investments in terms of that. But the market that is broadening a little bit is absolutely, and we talked about it last night, but reminding that it has been a week of oversized moves, double-digit moves. Is that scary? Well, if you're a Disney shareholder, I am. If you're a GM shareholder, I am. You've watched these stocks do nothing for four years. And, and, and you have had reaffirmation that they're company-specific through some things, but some dynamics around their business and the consumer. SARS, so auto sales are, are actually going to be improved upon last year. The dynamics around the consumer are much, much more resilient. So uh, I'm going to, you know, we're going to talk, you know, in a little bit uh, on semiconductors. And I think they are their own little part of the market. But but in terms of where you're getting leadership, 
Um, the kind of leadership that we've had doesn't necessarily mean that we have to stay there. And we have had head fakes on broadening. But again, go back to a Union Pacific, go to a CSX, go to shippers. Um, look at some of these names that are having monster years. Mm -hmm. It's not just AI. It's not just technology. And I think that's interesting. And those big gap hires and the names that you had mentioned specifically, you know, like a GM, for instance, it's almost like a realization that there is value in the market and that when they put up the earnings, there's a realization that, yes, the story could actually be for real. And if all the things that you had pointed out in terms of the soft landing scenario right. plays out, you want to be in some of these better valuation names and maybe you're willing to give up the growth or, or you know, move some money into some of the undervalued. Well, I think you're going to get that's how you're going to beat the overall market because everyone is so crowded into the tech names. But to Tim's point, you know, everyone's worried about tech being such an outsized percentage of the S&P. Every company in every other sector, as either, you're either a tech company or you're using technology within your company. So tech is the overlay. So I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be concerned with that outsized percentage in the indices. But in order to beat the benchmarks, you have to be involved in something that is sort of under the radar because those are the ones that are going to double. And it's also interesting that that markets are doing this with the with the interest rates, you know, essentially at, at two month highs with the dollar having been strong. The dollar is four percent off of the uh, the pullback that it had. We've moved probably 40 basis points, 35 for sure on the 10 year. And I, I think these trends are such that, you know, you had a decent auction this week. You had you've had dynamics, but I, I think rates are staying high. So there, there are some things that don't compute. Right. You have this case where equity shouldn't be doing this in, in a 5 percent Fed funds world. We've also seen that correct. So, you know, where we are back out to August, we're talking about I don't know, about 65 basis points. That was over, you know, over 1% just about three weeks ago. So the higher interest rates with the stronger dollar with equities doing this, that means good news is good news. I mean, my view is this is people believing that the economy is in a better place and that this isn't necessarily see, bad for stocks. See, or they see cuts coming. So it's maybe it's just a point of reference. Well, this morning, I spoke to Shri Kumar uh, this morning mm -hmm. of Shri Kumar Global. By the way, you were great this morning on Squawk Box. Tremendous. I hope everybody can go back and watch. No, I'm being serious. <laughs> on their, on their you know, if you were bad, AMS. I would have said you were bad. You yes, happened to be You wouldn't have said anything. Well, he could have said he, I was bad. Um, <laughs> anyway, but he was saying that he expected a rate cut come May 1st mm -hmm. because of a commercial real estate right. tsunami. Mm. Tsunami. Tsunami. Not, not like a, a hurricane or a cat 2. It's like, you know, tsunami. Paul Tudor Jones made comments similar to mm -hmm. that recently as well. There are a lot of people that believe it. There are clearly no... I want to be careful here. There are really no signs in terms of some of these market that that's on the horizon. But with that said, these things seem to come out of thin air. And that's the reason that you have to be concerned, because if they cut rates for those reasons, I don't think that's particularly market friendly. All right. Uh, we've got a news alert here on former President Donald Trump's apparent about face on Bud Light. Eamon Javers has the details. Eamon. Hey there, Melissa. CNBC has learned the backstory to a social media post from former President Trump which has gotten a lot of attention this week. On February 6th, Trump took to his Truth Social platform to argue that his supporters should give Anheuser-Busch a second chance in the wake of last year's controversy over the company's support for a transgender influencer. The former president appeared to be well-informed of detailed aspects of the beer company's operations. He noted that the company spends $700 million a year with our great farmers, employs 65,000 Americans, and has provided scholarships to families of fallen members of the military. The former president wrote, Anheuser-Busch is a great American brand that perhaps deserves a second chance. 
Now, David Faber and I have been making calls on this, and we can report that the Trump post came after Dana White, president of the Ultimate Fighting Championship, reached out directly to Trump to encourage positive commentary about Anheuser-Busch. That's according to a source familiar with the situation. Remember, in October, UFC announced a partnership with Anheuser-Busch to make Bud Light the official beer partner of the Ultimate Fighting Company in a deal that was reported at the time to be worth $100 million. In a press release announcing the deal, White said, There are many reasons why I chose to go with Anheuser-Busch and Bud Light, most importantly because I feel we are very aligned when it comes to our core values and what the UFC brand stands for. A spokesman for UFC declined to comment on the White-Trump conversation. In his post Tuesday, former, the former president threatened to release a list of companies other than Anheuser-Busch that he considers to be woke and building a list and might just release it for the world to see, Trump wrote. His followers, Trump suggested, should be going after those companies that are looking to destroy America. That came after a post on February 4th, in which Trump was much more critical of Anheuser-Busch. On February 4th, Trump posted, the Bud Light ad will go down as the worst ad in history. In a matter of minutes, $30 billion worth of market cap simply disappeared from the face of the earth. Will they ever get it back? Who knows, but what a mess. So, Melissa, you can see the change in tone there between the February 4th post, uh, very critical of Bud Light, and then that February 6th post urging that his followers should give Anheuser-Busch a second chance. Now we know the backstory to how that came to be, Melissa. Back over to you. So let me get this straight, Eamon. So Dana White and UFC have a partnership with Bud Light. So Dana White calls the president and urges him to be more kind uh, to Bud Light. What does Trump get out of this? Well, that's a good question, Melissa, and uh, we don't know. I mean, Dana White and Donald Trump are, I'm told, uh, very close. They speak regularly. Uh, White is in, in contact with the former president on a regular basis. And obviously, the timing of this is very important for Anheuser-Busch, right? This is just before the Super Bowl, obviously a big beer drinking event. Anheuser-Busch, uh, the Wall Street Journal reported this week, uh, they've got a big ad campaign for Bud Light coming up. They have been struggling in the wake of this sort of conservative criticism of the company uh, for doing a, a deal with the, the transgender influencer back in April of last year. So for, for a year now almost, the company has been really struggling to win back support from that company, from from that constituency. You saw Kid Rock out there shooting right. cases of Bud Light. Been, it's been very damaging for the company. So clearly, Dana White, uh, who has uh, just gotten $100 million support from Anheuser-Busch, uh, has a dog in that fight. And uh, we are told Dana White called the former president uh, and asked him to do this in so many words. All right. Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers, and this is why we saw, we've seen Modelo really gain share, at least here in the United States, Tim, and sort of the, those, uh, you know, share shifts There's happen. There's a lot of uh, history between those companies, by the way, and guess what? I, I don't think Bud's an American company anymore, folks. It's owned by Brazilians. Yeah. It's owned by 3G Capital. Um, so get your history right. And the, the dynamic with Modelo is when Bud did this big deal with Ambev and Imbev, they had to divest significant assets of which they had divested Modelo. Uh, and that's been a home run on its own. Bud shares, by the way, up 45 percent from the lows, have rallied about 26 percent. Uh, if you look at the beer space overall, 
we've actually seen a, a lot of consolidation within those shares and actually better trends on beer over the last three months. Meantime, let's get to the Nikkei. Uh, that index hitting a fresh 34-year high overnight. This latest move coming as the yen continues to fall and speculation rising that Japan's central bank will not aggressively tighten its monetary policy. Can this run keep going? Let's go off the charts with LPL chief technical strategist Adam Turnquest to find out. Adam, great to see you. What do you see in the charts here? Hey, thanks for having me on. And you don't really need to be a technician to look at the longer term chart of the Nikkei and see that we're in a pretty strong uptrend. And we might end a 34 year downtrend going back to 1989. That's the peak on the Nikkei. And we're we're trending toward that. And there's been a lot of changes in that 34 year period. Of course, one of the big changes is the government reform and the more shareholder friendly policies that they've instilled into their economy. You're seeing record buybacks. You're seeing record dividend payouts. Households are now investing in equities there. So there's a pretty strong macro theme that's driving this. Of course, when you dive a little bit into the shorter term technicals, it's really a story of breakout, consolidation, breakout, consolidation. We did break out early this year to new multi-year highs. We just had a shorter term breakout. We call it a bullish pennant formation. And if you measure that out and apply it, an upside price objective, that gets you to um, call it around 40,000. So, Tim, you might be uh, missed the, the S&P 5,000 hat, but you could be wearing a Nikkei 40,000 by year end, we think, on the technicals here. We'll get working on embroidering that, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the tip. Um, part of this, obviously, is the weak yen. Uh, the, the yen right now is sitting at just about two-month lows against the dollar. What do you see there? I think right now, when you look at the yen, it's just more of a consolidation phase. We had a sharp pullback at, off that 152 level, came back. We're now back above the 200-day the moving average. So when we look at it technically here, it's hard to argue against kind of a range-bound market, especially with what's going on with the Bank of Japan. Still ultra-accommodative policy there. Expecting a change at some point, but we don't think it will be drastic. So maybe 152 on the upper end, 140-ish on the low end. I think the market would welcome that and more of a, a normalization there in terms of yen trading. Adam, great to see you. Thank you, Adam Turnquist. Thanks for having me. Um, at the beginning of the, the Nikkei's run, part of it was the not China trade. People didn't want to be in China anymore and, and just simply allocated to Japan. Is there more to it at this point? Yeah, well, Tim's been on this. Yeah. You know, who else? What part of that was Warren Buffett talking about his ownership. Right. I think five different banks in Japan. That started this as well. But, you know, the EWJ, which is rallied as well, but is not making new all-time highs. That has room. And I think the largest holding there is Toyota Motors, which was a final mm-hmm. trade of Tim's last, I think, earlier this week. That's number one. And I tell you what, that you might get value in in terms of the EWJ. Well, and, and EWJ was my final trade last night. And part of the reason that's been weak is because it's also imputed back to the weaker yen. So you actually have exposure to the currency. But I, I think Jim, Japan's gangbusters. And again, I, I, I work on an international ETF, IDBO, the I and BICEP. Japan is a major part of this ETF. Uh, Mitsubishi UFG is near the top, Toyota Motors. And, and the dynamic is not just inflation again in Japan, but the TSX, the Toronto Stock, excuse me, the Taiwan, excuse me, the Tokyo Stock Exchange, let's try this again, has been putting a lot of pressure on companies to increase payouts and buybacks. The corporate governance dynamics are a lot better in Japan than they have been in, in a long time. And I think these companies look very interesting. And if you look at their market, <clears throat> we talk about our market being dependent on technology. 
their market is roughly it's over 40 percent technology based or technology levered. And, and that seems to be what's really pushing the market, along with the yen, along with pricing. Valuations seem to be in line. Dividends, buybacks are probably on the rise. And, and I think it's an awakening now when you had a deflationary market. Now you're starting to see some inflation, and it's taking those risky assets higher. Have you noticed that hardly a night goes by where Tim does not mention his bicep trade? Well, look, I, I mean, mean, it's really getting a little you know, shameless. Well, I mean, point. it's uh, the the. I love that. A lot she of green left in the year, sh- you, know what? I mean, you know what? There's nothing I can say when I'm called shameless by Melissa, so I'm just well, going to stop right now. You're not shameless. The mention of bicep every day. I know. It's, you started right. this with the acronyms. I mean, I mean, does well, at least I, I wasn't my this. game. At least Tim did it correctly. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. He did the acronyms. Yeah. Thank you, We're Mr. Clam. not going to mention names. Mr. Clam. The semi-surge rocks on the details on NVIDIA's huge investment helping drive chip stocks to the roof and a biotech buzzkill. Bad news for Moderna's entry into the RSV vaccine race. The news hitting the stock hard, the details, and the diagnosis for the space when Fast Money returns. This is Fast Money with Melissa Lee right here on CNBC. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Semiconductor soaring in today's session. The SMH ETF jumping 2% as the White House announces plans to invest $5 billion in new semiconductor research and development. NVIDIA also among the biggest winners on reports that it is forming a new unit focused on designing custom chips, including advanced AI processors for cloud computing firms. That stock closing at a fresh all-time high and gaining 3.5%. It's just unstoppable. It seems, at least, Tim. Well, it, you know, it's it's up, uh, you know, forty percent year to date. This announcement today is another niche they're carving out, while other folks are just scrambling to get close to what they're doing. If you look at semis, uh, you know, they're up one hundred forty-two percent from October of twenty-two. Apparently, semis double every year. This is what it seems like. And, and if you think about the leadership, again, we talked about the market, but until semis stop leading. And again, leading the Nasdaq, which is leading the S&P, this market's going higher. And and there's all kinds of metaphors and analogies to uh, where they are in the they're the new commodity. They are. You know, we talk about that. But that used to mean cyclicality. Now it means high growth. And and until that stops leading, folks, it's going to lead. There's an argument for both. I mean, it can really fit the bill for for a couple of arguments. I mean, Julie, if you're a believer in being invested in the growth stocks because of uncertainty or, or whatever it is, they fit the bill. If you're a believer that there's a soft landing here and you want to be in cyclicals, semis fit the bill. I mean, it's like uh, for everybody, for every argument you have. 
Yeah, you can you can make any argument around them. And I think that's what you're seeing in the valuations for them. There's just so much support, broadly speaking. I still am a little concerned that the cyclicality is underestimated and that some of the growth that we're seeing right now is not sustainable. So I think it really benefits to be very choosy and being really selective in the types that you're using. Because at the end of the day, these are still very capital intensive businesses that have a hard time forecasting growth. So I, I think for me, you've got to be really careful. I think Sam Altman today announced he was trying to raise $7 trillion. Trillion. The U.S. is going to spend $5 billion on these research and development centers, and Sam Trillion is going to be in the trillions. In the, in the Middle East. In the Middle East. In the Middle East. That's going to go over well. Seven tr- I mean, global G- I mean, good for him. I think global GDP is like $100 trillion. I mean, th- when, you get, when you start hearing like, things like this, you're pushing towards the outskirts of absurdity. $7 trillion fund. Is this like at the top? Good Are luck. Look I mean, he, you know, he probably Walton. pulls it off, but that's something. But Julie is right to talk about the cyclicality. You brought up, I guess I brought it up too, but, but here's the point. We actually saw Taiwan Semi this year give guidance in their numbers. They're going to grow 9.5% this January over last January. A lot of these, chips comp- these chip companies in the last 12 years have had to hit the headwinds of inventory and corrections. And we've had part of the dynamic being part of this move, and it's been extraordinary by any measure, has been we've gotten kind of an all clear on destocking and growth again. And that cycle. And it's it's telling us it's alive and well. So, so you, yeah, you definitely had a supply chain opening up. But if you look at Nvidia, it, it was about pixie dust. Uh, and then you look at they are the only ones that are monetizing right now, and they ho- own an 85% market share in AI. So when you look at Nvidia, everyone compares AMD as a second choice, but. The third choice, which should be your second, Broadcom. Broadcom actually outperformed AMD. And unless you actually look at the numbers, you wouldn't have realized that. So the dark horse in this is AVGO. But NVIDIA still owns the crown in all of AI. It's their game to lose. It's a terrible setup. NVIDIA is ahead of its earnings, which are like a couple weeks from now. As it has been for the last two earnings quarters. That's true. Right. And still... I don't know. Steve's right about AVGO also. I mean, that, you know, we, we were playing that game about, you know, again, we love to play games here. And apparently the acronym games get an old guy. Apparently I've heard tonight it's getting game. a little bit old. Um, but but that we, we played a game where who would you put in the new MAG-7? AVGO is probably that name. Oh, mm. that's interesting. I gave a different name that day. but That was my name. <laughs> but thank you. It was good. good. There's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. A biotech buzzkill. Moderna tripping out of the starting gate in the latest vaccine race as competitors surge ahead. Is it time to ditch this name? We'll diagnose the winners and losers next. Plus, crypto craze or crypto curse? We'll sit down with one of Wall Street's biggest Coinbase bears to find out why he thinks you should brace for trouble in the Bitcoin exchange's stock. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Moderna taking a tumble today, down almost 7% after new data showed a drop in efficacy rate for its uh, RSV vaccine. The trial suggesting the shot was less effective long-term than other, for, compared to others from GSK and Pfizer. In a statement, Moderna cautioned against making comparisons between the vaccines, pointing to differences in the company's trials. Nonetheless, it went from something like 88% efficacy in month three to 30-something percent months after that. You only have so many dollars to allocate in that space, and you hear news like this, you're not going to wait around for Moderna to get it right or for them to get off the mat in terms of the stock price because it's been nothing now for the last few years. You're going to be in names that are giving you beta-like technology, and those Eli Lilly, Novo, and those names. And quite frankly, Merck's gotten off the mat as well. So I get it. Moderna's a good story. But in this environment, good is not good enough. Yeah, this, even though good for Pfizer's vaccine, not necessarily good for – I mean, this is just way too small, and Pfizer's supposed to be moving away from this business with CGen. Yeah, this is not uh, – look, again, Moderna, Pfizer, these were the heroes of COVID, and these are the stocks that actually can't get out of their own way because even though the companies are trying hard to tell you about the rest of their pipeline, we're not believing them. Moderna has a lot of cash in the balance sheet, but if they're not growing and they're in yesterday's trade – that's that. But, but look, that stock's been all over the place. It's had some big rallies here. I would just say, you know, you don't need to buy it tomorrow. And when you look at these names, it's very difficult to pick the binary outcome. And and every, the world has turned on its head. So we were pre-COVID, then your COVID, everything runs th- runs through the uh, through the roof. No, everything you can't buy it for vaccine. You have to buy it for the GLP GLP stocks, or you just buy XBI or IBB and make it easy on yourself. Set it, forget it. You're not going to get these outsized binary outcomes, mm-hmm. but it's still you don't have to worry about these downslides when you look at these charts. When you see some of the big cap pharma names, uh, Julie, and I'm thinking of a name like a Pfizer, you, you think they've got to make some acquisitions. I mean, Pfizer did make its own big acquisition, but there, of course, are others out there. And so Steve's point about you know going for the smaller potential, you know index of potential targets uh, has been the answer for a lot of people. Yeah, I think that's really thoughtful. And, you know, they've committed to two and a half billion dollars for their R&D over the next several years. And I think part of that is really just going to be in acquisitions in terms of bolstering the pipeline. I know that they want to do more internally. And look, these were the heroes of COVID. But it's really, really hard when you have just constant stubbing of your feet to say, no, no, we really have differentiated technology and that it's we have pre-filled syringes. It's like, yeah, that's great, but it's not necessarily enough to really beat the other competitors if they have better efficacy. So for sure, I think acquisitions are the only catalyst for this stock right now. Coming up, the countdown to the big game is on, and that means sports betting stocks could be about to score. We'll bring you the very latest from Vegas and an industry that can't wait for kickoff. Plus, Coinbase shares surging as Bitcoin closes in on 50,000. But is a crypto trading stock flying high now, only to fall hard later? We'll talk to one of the company's biggest bears next. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks. Closing out a week of milestones today. The S&P closing above 5,000 for the first time in history, locking in a fifth straight week of gains. And the Nasdaq jumping above 16,000 for the first time since November 2021. It's now less than half a percent from its record. The Dow, the only index down today, but still eking out a gain for the week. A couple of big losers uh, did sneak in. Pepsi dropping after reporting a miss on revenues before the bell. Sales falling in Q4. And Expedia plunging nearly 18 percent after last night's earnings report. It was the stock's worst day since the start of the pandemic. 
Meantime, a crypto comeback. Coinbase rising over 7% today as Bitcoin hit 48,000, its highest level in almost a month. The crypto space pulling back in the weeks immediately after spot Bitcoin ETFs were approved last month, but it has been recovering recently. Our next guest, though, thinks Coinbase is particularly vulnerable. Let's bring in one of the biggest Coinbase bears on the street, Dan Dolov of Mizuho. Dan, great to have you with us. So it's not just today's gain in Coinbase. Yesterday had a big gain as well. What do you attribute this move to? I think it's just FOMO. This is the uh-huh. trade has been as, you know, Bitcoin goes up, so does uh, Coinbase. But I think we're up for a very rough awakening because what's happening, you know, beneath the hood is ETF outflows from the Coinbase custodian ETFs are actually exceeding the inflows. Grayscale is falling apart. Um, the take rate is falling apart because now they're giving concessions for high volume traders. So everything that you were hoping for, like high take rates, high volumes, high spot, everything is reversing. So it's becoming like an amazing short the higher it goes. Dan, within the course of three days in January, JP Morgan downgraded Coinbase $80 price target. Oppenheimer upgraded it $160 price target. Clearly, they're looking at two entirely different things. You're obviously on the lower camp, but why that sort of disparity in terms of analysts? I think that, I think that the interesting thing, guys, is that there is something emotional about Bitcoin and crypto. I, I can't really explain it. So, you know, if you're people that are diehard believers in Bitcoin and crypto, they're not seeing the underlying facts. They're just saying crypto goes up, Coinbase mm-hmm. goes up. And I really think it's more emotional than anything else. And in, in, it's for psychologists to explain so more than people like us. I, I hear you. And as someone that's been dabbling in Coinbase uh, in the last six months, and, and it's not been a bad trade until it was not a great trade in the last few weeks. But the psychology, whether it's some of the motion around it, also tells me that if we believe in Bitcoin and we believe in essentially the mass adoption and we believe in more regulation, there are more tokens to come. So isn't, isn't this the on-ramp? I mean, isn't this, isn't this story which was so good for Bitcoin? And I understand the, the factors you're talking about, absolutely right. It's very interesting to see it play out, even though we kind of expected this. But how about all the other you know, tokens to come? And, and that for a lot of people, this is the Wild West and that's where they're going. Yeah, and I, I, look, I personally, my own personal views, I think the whole thing is silly. Uh, <laughs> what, the whole crypto space? Yeah, completely All the silly. tokens like Ether, Solana, all of it everything, is silly? Everything, everything. No, is silly? 100%. There is no, what's the use case? But uh, that's a whole different story, sure. right? I'm personally like, uh, call it a Bitcoin bear, but that, you know, I cover Coinbase. I just don't think it's a productive asset. But that being said, I think competition is getting harder. All the inflows are going to Fidelity. Right. So when people wake up and they're seeing those take rates, those yields implode when they report, right, Q4 take rates are going to be lower for the first time in many, many quarters. Then that bifurcation between Bitcoin up, Coinbase up, that's going to change. Right. So my prediction is more on I can't predict Bitcoin. There's you know smarter people out, out there, but I can predict what the sentiment will be once the take rates implode on Coinbase and so Regardless I want to pick up right, right there, because yeah. I think that's the interesting part that you could have this uh, divergence w- within it. When you look at IBIT and when you look at the other ETFs and to Tim's point, when you have a bunch of other coins that are out there, that should be a bullish case for Coinbase. But the problem is everyone thinks that the narrative is going to be that they're going that they're not enough of the pie. All the all the volume was with Ethereum or Bitcoin. And if Ethereum is the next to go on ETF, that's the gameplay for the rest of them. So when you look at that divergence, what stocks could go up if Coinbase is no longer correlated and that that could go down and Bitcoin could go up? What other stocks are still correlated? It's a great question. I love 
Robinhood. Robinhood is probably the best play here, right? Regardless of whether or not you're a bull on crypto, et cetera, because you could trade those ETFs on Robinhood. So they're a net beneficiary. You cannot trade them on Coinbase, right? Because they're the custodian. The take rate they're making on AOM is like five basis points on a good day. So you should, you should want to be in Robinhood because that's where the equity or the ETF side is going to benefit from. I get that you can trade them on Robinhood, but just because you can trade the ETFs now on a platform doesn't mean that you go to Robinhood. So what is it about the Robinhood platform that makes it more attractive for those who want to trade a Bitcoin ETF as opposed to going to a Fidelity or a Schwab or wherever else you want to go? It's the quintessential, it's a great point. It's the quintessential trading platform for young people. And by the way, it's global. They're getting into the UK, they're getting into Europe. So it's, of course, if you're you know high net worth individual and you want to trade it on Schwab or Fidelity, you'll keep doing that. But for people who are like in their you know 20s or, or even below that, they're going to go to Robinhood. And they're going to say, hey, I want to, you know, I want to trade the ETF. Let me do it on Robinhood. So it, it gets more people to trade more, in my view. It's great for Robinhood. So you would short Coinbase here ahead of earnings even? 100%. All right. Dan, good to see you. Thank you, Dan Dolo. Thanks, Melissa. Mizuho. Uh, Julie, what's your take here on Coinbase? Yeah, no, I completely agree with everything he said. I, you know, I continue to view this space as highly speculative. It doesn't really serve or a purpose or solve major problems. Um, but other than, you know, straight gambling. So I, I agree that their positioning, though, as custodian is maybe misunderstood um, by, you know, less seasoned investors and that that's really going to come to the market and come to the fore in the next earnings. We have seen, by the way, other crypto related stocks run as well in the past couple of days a MicroStrategy, mm-hmm. Riot, Marathon, all those. Just com- well, I mean, overlay crypto- Bitcoin, you see MicroStrategies. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of with them on Robinhood. I mean, they're going to be profitable this year, I think. And the last couple of quarters have actually been good. They have cash on the balance sheet at 11 and change. This is one you might want to take a shot at. I think they report on the 13th. You in Ether? Is that? I am in Ether. Yeah, Ether, Ether, Grayscale Ether was my biggest position last year. It's, it's somewhere down the food chain right now because it's tripled, basically. But that's going to, that'll be the next one that becomes an ETF. Hopefully you start to see that rise. It's probably going to happen sometime in June. So he didn't even mention wage. No, I had to put up the graphic wage to remind people of acronyms. Sometimes I, know, I actually, just, I actually Mr. forgot. Sometimes about you it. have to advocate for yourself on the show. <laughs> and, no, you're yeah, kidding me. That's a good lesson for what I do. Youth. You know, uh, coming up, sports betting stocks in the red zone. <laughs> the group getting a boost out of Sunday's big game, and uh, with Las Vegas setting this year, there's even more focus on the gambling gains. More on that ahead. But first, Julie's bringing us the chart of the week. She's digging into the housing trade. Why one stock is catching her attention? Next. And during February, we are celebrating Black Heritage. Here's the global head of corporate engagement at Goldman Sachs. I was an immigrant and we grew up in in public housing. I think there was nothing about my background that would have suggested that I would grow up to become the senior most black professional um, at Goldman Sachs or the second person in the firm's history to sit on the management committee as a black person. But I think um, there's a universality about black history is American history and American history is black history. And I think there's so much to be learned in that. Welcome back to Fast Money. Time for the chart of the week. And one of our traders is watching a name that may be flying under the radar. Simpson Manufacturing is up despite missing earnings estimates earlier this week. The stock has climbed 75 percent in the past year. So, Julie, give us a lowdown here and why this is your chart of the week. 
Well, what I was thinking about was looking at the um, the home building ETF segment overall, because we know that we are secularly underhoused, and I think no one was expecting the kind of price performance uh, in home builders last year that they actually, they managed to deliver. And that's just a function of that there is no inventory whatsoever. What I think we've realized, though, is that it's the problem with owning home builders is like there's so much execution risk. They have to be in exactly the right markets. They have to sell the right product. They have to sell it at the right price in order for it to be successful. And so it's very varied. And so it sounds like, oh, OK, well, I'll own it as an ETF. But I think the better way to play it is look at their supply chain. And Simpson is a manufacturer of the strong tie, which literally holds the bracket up together in terms of the framing. And it's mandated in a lot of building codes by name. And so there's just no better marketing than having regulators literally put you as the standard that they want to see in order to approve the code. Um, so it's just positioned really well. And, you know, they have 70% market share and, you know, they've been pricing before it was cool to raise prices. Julia, I think the stock's right around an all-time high. Just question, Lumpy, which was the character, by the way, in, in Scrooge, yeah, yeah. earnings, October, they had a huge beat. They just had a pretty big EPS meet, miss now. What's on the back of that, if anything? Uh, you know, I think it's imp like when you look at some of these smaller businesses, they have a harder time being able to forecast really well. And order volumes, as we know, in home building can be also pretty lumpy. So we look at these businesses on a yearly basis rather than quarter to quarter. And I think the long term fundamentals of this business, if your you know, hold period is five years, which ours is, it looks pretty favorable from here. Can I can I get in a more famous a lumpy? lumpy? Yeah, yeah, Lumpy Rutherford on Leave It to Beaver. He was a much oh, more famous Lumpy. Yes. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to go Lumpies, got to go the beef. That's my Lumpy. Yeah, right. thanks. We welcome write-in suggestions if you want to join us. Your favorite <laughs> Lumpy. Coming up, the countdown to kickoff begins. We are just days away from the Super Bowl and ahead of the big game. The NFL got a big boost in viewership, while sportsbooks saw a big boost in wagers. Coincidence or correlation? Contessa Brewer wanted to know. Which do you think has brought more fans to NFL? Gambling or Taylor Swift? Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift, no doubt. I think it is sports gambling. I don't know, but that's a deadly combination. We'll go live to Las Vegas for more on the super boom in betting. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. We are counting down to the big game, and it's not just the 49ers and Chiefs getting in on the action. Sports betting stocks have seen a big boost over the last few days. Contessa Brewer has more on the off-field gains. Contessa. Melissa, maybe it's the buzz about the Super Bowl, but look at DraftKings. It's up 4% this week. CEO Jason Robbins told me last night last night that he's got some ground to make up here in terms of the share. Uh, MGM Resorts up 4% too, expecting a Super Bowl lift from BetMGM as well as its Las Vegas empire here hosting the game. Wynn got a big boost on earnings, up 9%. Penn shares got some gasoline this week, almost up 7%. What's more, Bank of America analyst Sean Kelly says Penn may get the biggest boost from the Taylor Swift effect with women customers gambling on ESPN bet. And just today, FanDuel's parent Flutter gained 3.5%. I interviewed all four CEOs of the four biggest sports books right here in Las Vegas, FanDuel, DraftKings, BetMGM, and Caesars. They all told me they expect record wagers for Sunday's game, Melissa. And Contessa, you got some interesting market thoughts from the players themselves as well. So it's not as if they're not busy enough here ahead of this weekend. <laughs> 
It was thought-provoking, truly. 49ers and Chiefs head-to-head tackling the kinds of tough questions we normally say for Guy Adami and other Wall Streeters. What's your expectation of a Fed rate cut this year? What was that? I think they're doing a soft landing. Timing-wise? Timing-wise, probably end of the month or early Q2. And I hope it happens, honestly. Um, I bought my home last year, so I'm kind of, I missed the train on that. I think towards the later part of this year, maybe Q4, uh, we'll see a rate cut. Obviously, uh, Jerome Powell has continually fought against that, but I think he's just trying to signal the market not to get too hot. And then there were thoughts on Elon Musk and AI, and I'm telling you, like it was, it was Wall Street better take notice of these guys. They are tuned in at the risk of looking idiotic. Actually, I have no fear of looking idiotic on the show every day. Who was that last guy, Contessa, talking about Jerome Powell? <laughs> oh, yeah, that was Christian. I don't know. Like, apparently he's up maybe for MVP, Christian McCaffrey. <laughs> you know, like, I, I was like, hey, you seem like a big deal. I'm going to ask you a question. So I did. I got in there. And not only that, I... I, I got a question to Brock Purdy, and here's another thing that, that maybe the Wall Street will be interested in. I said to Brock Purdy, hey, you were a long shot when you started. Was there an advantage to being underestimated? And he gave me a pretty long answer, but basically, yeah, he said there is an advantage. <laughs> Contessa, thank you. Great work out there. Contessa Brewer in Las thank Vegas. Contessa's got it going on. I mean, she's, oh, that's a great a gig. That's, that's, a great, a, that's a great gig. Those are great conversations she was able to drive. That guy, Justin Watson, man, he knows more than I do about the Fed. It's crazy. I mean, it's... it's, it's and he's got bigger impressive. biceps. Well, you know. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, we'll see where we end up at the end of the year. I well, mean, if things go well. Some I mean, of these gaming stocks, this is, yeah. like a, this is like Black Friday, not Black Friday, but, you know, it's like a big deal for this season. When, when you look at gaming stocks, the one that's synonymous with it is always DraftKings. And, and the others have something in their in their pie. It's a, it's a slice of it. It's a percentage of revenues that come for it. But if you want a direct play, then you go to DraftKings. All the others definitively have something in it, but this is the direct play. Up next, final trades. Final trade time, Julie. Uh, you know, Aspen reported a pretty good quarter. I think it's in good shape for the next year or so, and I, you can't beat 29% EBITDA margins. It's really, really healthy. Tim. One show. I wish we had talked about bicep a little bit more. <laughs> a- anyway, <laughs> Taiwan Semi, big week. I think it's still going higher. Steve Grasso. Dan Dolev gave me this trade. Robin Hood, H-O-O-D is how it comes out. Guy. Christian McCaffrey, you know he's a big fan of the show. He started watching it with his father, Ed McCaffrey, who played for the Giants, as Tim knows. Yep. Sure. Mel thinks you bet the over this weekend. I'm sort of with her on that, Melms. Well done by you. A Valero continues to go higher. <gasps> All right. Happy Lunar New Year to those celebrating. Have a great Super Bowl weekend. Thanks for watching Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries 
stories warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.